I sure am encouraged by the amount of people that are here tonight. Appreciate your um, willingness to brave the elements. Appreciate your desire to come together as a family. Um, you're an encouragement to me tonight by being here, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Tonight I want to begin in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, <clears throat> where Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. <clears throat> Paul writes to these people in a faraway city, and he tells them of his desire to travel to Rome. He's not traveling to Rome to see the great scenes, the great sights, to go on a vacation. But he says, I'm, re I'm ready to come to Rome specifically to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. What do you think Paul had in mind here for these people? When you think of the word gospel... What comes to your mind? If I was to ask you to preach the gospel tonight, what kind of things would you say? What kind of things would be in your message? What would you like to talk about? Now, some of us here, we're not Greek scholars. We're not even English scholars. And the word gospel might be one of those religious terms that you may not be familiar with. That's why we have dictionaries. That's why we have lexicons that we can open up. And we could figure out what these words mean. If you look at a dictionary, specifically a Greek dictionary, and you look at the Greek word for gospel, it's, <clears throat> uh, my mind went blank on how to pronounce it, but you can see it. How about that? Um, it means a good message. Okay? It means a good message. Now, Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. So I'm ready to preach a good message to 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 these people. Now, we're bombarded with good messages all the time, aren't we? If you drive up and down I-27, uh, there's billboards. And what are they doing? They're advertising services that will enhance your life. If you will just call this number and give me your money, your life will be a lot better, right? We turn on our TV and we are bombarded by commercials where people are advertising services and goods that if you will just give us your money, then your life will be a lot better. If you're like me, you get dozens of text messages a day about some sort of politician that needs your money. And the message that I'm getting is, if you give me your money, I'll make America great again. Or I will be able to accomplish this goal. We, we hear all kinds of good messages from politicians. Sometimes our friends even have good messages. Now, ask Jackson for permission, but I've heard Jackson preach the gospel of cold plunges. And if you've heard Jackson talk about his daily routine, getting up in the morning and going and jumping in a bath full of cold water, you've heard Jackson preach the gospel of cold plunges. Now, I don't agree with the gospel of cold plunges, but Jackson says that there are great benefits. And if you talk to him tonight, he will tell you about the gospel of cold plunges. Now, I have a different gospel Many of you have heard me teach the gospel of Brahms milk. And as soon as Plainview was getting a Brahms, I started spreading the message far and wide. T 
telling people the good news of Brahms milk. It's something I love, and there's all sorts of reasons why I think you should be a consumer of Brahms milk, okay? Now, those are some silly examples, but I, I hope the, those convey the idea of what a gospel is. Now, you might like tasty milk. You might like daily, daily morning routines of jumping in cold wa water. But Paul's gospel was not something that would just slightly enhance your life. Paul's gospel was life-changing, transforming, salvation-giving gospel. And what was his gospel? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul's message was Christ. What Christ has done, that was his good news that he was ready to bring to the people at Rome and to teach them about. So what good news did Christ bring to Paul? Christ came to Paul and he taught him some things and Paul was ready to share that. What was that good news that Christ brought to Paul? If you could summarize Jesus' teachings tonight in a simple description, what would you use to describe Christ's gospel, the gospel that Christ brought to this earth. I think a great place to start is to look at those people who followed Jesus and heard his teachings every day for many years, for, for three years while he was here on this earth. People that Christ gave the Holy Spirit to inspire them and to teach them what they should say when they described his gospel. People like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As they summarize the teachings of Jesus, I want to look at what they called it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease amongst the people. So Matthew called it the gospel of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible records... Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And finally, Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. So let's stop a moment and let's dissect this idea of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So gospel means good news, right? So Jesus came and he was preaching the good news of what? The kingdom of God. Now what is the kingdom of God? That means the rule, the reign of God. So as they summarized Jesus' teachings, as he went about teaching on this earth, they summed it up as Jesus teaching the good news of God reigning on this earth. Now, I have some questions about that. If I was going to describe Jesus' teachings as the gospel of X or gospel of Y or gospel of Z, if I'm honest, most of the time the gospel of the kingdom would not come to mind. In fact, for large portions of my life, I wouldn't have even thought about that. But a few years ago, I began to study. I studied Psalm 2, and, and from that moment forward, I've been thinking about this kingdom and this kingdom message that Christ taught I've been asking questions like, does this passage, or does Jesus' gospel inter intersect with what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, or what uh, Paul taught in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 about obeying the gospel? 
Is the gospel of the kingdom, is it about salvation? Is it about getting right with God? Is it about going to heaven when we die? Or is there something more to it? So tonight what I want to do is I want to study the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel that Jesus taught, the good news of God's reign here on earth. And what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to, well, I want to do three things. Number one, I want to look at the context of this gospel that Jesus taught. I want to see how this gospel that Jesus taught didn't start with Jesus, but started many years before Jesus. Number two, I want to think about why the kingdom is good news. And then number three, what you and I need to do with the gospel of the kingdom today. So let's begin by thinking about the context. And I want to go back to the very beginning of time where we see the Bible first introduce this idea of God reigning on earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, the Bible says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we see God create the world just as he wanted it in the beginning. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. And he created plants and animals and all the wonderful things that are here on this earth. And God's perfect design was that he was going to turn the earth over to Adam and Eve and allow mankind to rule under his authority. And he gave them this dominion. He invites Adam and Eve to have this dominion to rule the earth. In this perfect creation, Adam and Eve walked with God. They talked with God. They served God, and they were at perfect harmony. This was paradise. This was heaven on earth. But, if you're familiar with the story, just two chapters later, things go wrong. And what man tries to do is he tries to rule without God. And we see Satan come to Adam and Eve, and he says, if you'll just do this, you can be like God's, and you could be your own God, and you could live outside the rule of God. And this temptation was something that Adam and Eve decided to accept. And they rebelled against God, and they tried to live outside the rule of God. What happened? When they chose to do that, the world was broken. I don't know if y'all remember, but in 2019, David Minson was here, and he preached a sermon called, When Sin Broke the World. As we think about all the good things in this earth, there's also plenty of bad Lots of sorrow, lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of brokenness. That wasn't God's design. God's design was perfect, and sin corrupted and destroyed that perfect design. And the world became cursed. All of this traces its way back to this rebellion, to this sin. But God is not willing to abandon mankind to our devices. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what God does is He gives good news. Yes, the world is cursed. Yes, you're exiled from the garden. But the seed of the woman will fix this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Adam and Eve probably had no idea what he was talking about. Satan obviously didn't, because he, he killed Jesus trying to defeat Jesus. But what God is doing is he's telling them good news, that he's going to fix this through the seed of the woman. Later on, God comes to a man by the name of Abraham, and he invites him to, to be 
part of this, uh, part of this rebuilding and fixing this situation. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes about God interacting with Abraham. And notice what he says in the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What did God do? He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So God is preaching the gospel to Abraham, and he's telling Abraham what he's going to do. Through Abraham, through a great, 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 great grandson of Abraham, all people of the earth would be blessed. He's telling him that God's going to fix the situation through Abraham's family. This was good news that God preached to Abraham. Later on, God wants to roll with Abraham's family. In this particular verse, that word Jeshurun is called Israel. Or that's another word for Israel. So Abraham's family's taken. They're in captivity in Egypt. God leads them out of Egypt. And he invites them to be his special people in the world. To be his chosen people, his chosen nation. And to live under his rule. Deuteronomy 33 verse 5 in the ESV the Bible says thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun which is Israel when the heads of the people were gathered all the tribes of Israel together so God invites Israel to come back and to live under the rule of God and to serve him and to be blessed and to show the world the great blessings of serving God but like Adam and Eve guess what they did they rejected that rule Eventually, they rejected the rule of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. The people had the opportunity to serve God as king. And they said, we don't want that. We want to be like all the nations around us. And God said, they rejected me. They did not want me to rule on, over them. So eventually what happens? God gives them what they want. God gave Adam and Eve what they want, and it led to their destruction. Or, or they uh, obtained what they want, and it led to their destruction. God gives them a king. And the first king was Saul. Guess what happened? He was rebellious. He was focused on himself. David was a man after God's own heart, but he also was an adulterer and a murderer. And eventually, these kings, what do they do? They lead Israel into captivity. They turn away from God, and God allows them to reap the fruit of their choices. They're taken into captivity. Ultimately, these human kings lead Israel to be like other nations. They're idolaters, they're wicked, and they're sinful. People who were once ruled by the holy and the righteous God, now idolaters, serving other gods, <clears throat> just like the other nations. So, as we get to the end of the Old Testament, these kings have led Israel into captivity. They've been taken into captivity, captivity by a great nation named Babylon. What does God do? He made a promise, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore my rule on earth. And how does he share that message? It's through the prophets. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
All those Old Testament prophets that we have in the, in the back of our Old Testaments, what do they do? They tell of how God will fix this with a great kingdom ruled by a great king. I want to look at a few of these passages. We could look at many, many, many more tonight. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and he tells David about this descendant of David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now imagine being David. David's life was completely covered with all these wars and these battles against these surrounding nations. There was always a threat of the kingdom being overrun and losing that throne. But what God promises is that there's going to be one of, your, one of your seed will come and I will establish his throne forever. That was good news that God told David. In Isaiah chapter 9, a passage that's commonly read uh, around the time that we celebrate the birth of Christ, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his... And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with the judgment and justice from the time forward, even forever. So what Isaiah tells us is not only is this, king going to last, this kingdom going to last forever, but he is going to order it and establish with judgment and justice. All right? In the kingdoms of the world... Justice and judgment is twisted. The people who are rich and powerful get off, but not in this kingdom. He's going to be a righteous judge, a good judge. He's going to be a wonderful king, a mighty God, everlasting father. This is going to be a great king to rule this kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to take the time to read that, that dream, but what Nebuchadnezzar sees is this great statue that represents different kingdoms of the earth. And at the end of this dream, there's this stone that comes and it destroys all these kingdoms. And Daniel tells him the interpretation of that dream. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that what will come to pass after this, the dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So there's going to be a kingdom that's not made with hands. It's not a kingdom like other kingdoms of this world. And it's going to never be destroyed, and it's going to be set up by God of heaven. The God of heaven would establish this king. Daniel 7. He's, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That's what Jesus was commonly called while he was here on this earth. Here he is, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So he talks about destroying other kingdoms, but at the same time, in verse 14, all people, all nations, and all languages should serve him. This kingdom would be throughout all the world, 
and not just Abraham's family, but all people, all nations, and all languages would serve this king. And finally, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace. You might recognize that language from Romans chapter 10 when Paul's talking about the gospel. Now, feet are not something that are beautiful, are they? But here the writer says that the feet of messengers who bring good news are beautiful. Why? Because of the message they bring. And notice the message that this man brings. He proclaims peace. Who brings glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation. So he's proclaiming peace. He's proclaiming salvation. And what is the word that he's saying? Or what are the words he says? Your God reigns. When God reigns and God rules, people thrive. There is peace. There is salvation. That is the message of the messenger in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. So we take all of these prophecies, right? What are they talking about? They're talking about a coming king, a coming kingdom, when God would restore the, way, the world to the way things should be. So we take those and we bring it to first century Judea. Now, imagine you're a first century Jew. Okay? You go to the synagogue every Sabbath day, and you hear stories of David defeating Goliath. And you hear about Abraham, and you hear about Moses leading Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And you think about all the wonders of the temple when Solomon built the temple. And then you remember, as you were walking to the synagogue, you passed a dozen Roman soldiers who were occupying Israel at the time. They were representatives of the king that reigned over Israel, Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar politically oppressed the Jews. He burdened them with his taxes. And if you went up against him, you would be killed. All along the roads were, were people who had been crucified on crosses because they had rebelled against Caesar. You know what that person needs? The person needs good news. But not only on top of that, God's people, the leaders, the religious leaders, they burdened your life even more. They were hypocrites. And their whole goal in life was to make themselves look good amongst others, to exalt themselves. And they made other people's life difficult. They were hypocrites. You had no hope in your religious people, in Rome. You know what you need? You need good news. And you hear of this man named John who's out in the wilderness and he's preaching some good news. So you go out to hear and in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've known all along that one day God was going to fix what was broken. And your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents had worried or, or they had anticipated this kingdom coming. But what John does is he takes that same message about the kingdom and he puts a time constraint on it. The kingdom of heaven is not coming in the future, a long ways away, but it's at hand. It's right here. 
It's coming. Get ready. Repent, for it is coming. That's good news. That's something to be excited about. John is teaching this message of good news. And that brings us all the way back to where we started about Jesus preaching the good news. John was a forerunner for Jesus. And the same message that the prophets preached that John took hold of, Jesus preached the same thing in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus taught the same message that had been preached all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament by John. And Jesus taught about that kingdom. Now as we see Jesus go around, we see Him teach various aspects of that kingdom. Matthew chapter 13 records all the par- a lot of the parables that Jesus taught. The kingdom of heaven is like a sower. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. And He talks about all these various aspects of the kingdom. He talks about the nature of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about the kind of people who are going to be in it. The very first words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are these people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' message was focused on the kingdom, what it would be like. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about different values and principles that would govern the people of the kingdom. The people would be the salt of the earth. They would be a light to the world. But not only that, we see that Jesus sends out his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he sends out his disciples into Judea, and they're to take the, the good news of the kingdom to the Israelites. So Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches about this kingdom. Guess who notices that Jesus is teaching about this kingdom? Other kings. And if you're a king and you hear about another king coming into power, what are you going to do? I'm going to get focused on him, and I'm going to try to take him out. And that's exactly what Herod did when Jesus was born. Remember the wise men, they came to Herod, and they say, where is the king that's been born? What does Herod do? He slaughters all the boys in Bethlehem that was Jesus' age, because he does not want this king to reign over him. Herod tries to keep this king this kingdom from coming. Not only that, but we see Jesus interact with the religious leaders, the Jews, right? And we see them at conflict, discussing various aspects of the law. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to trick him. They're trying to take away his influence over the people. But instead, what happens? They look like buffoons. And they could not stop him from accomplishing what he was doing. And so what do they do? They turn to the ways of the world And they have Jesus killed. And they joined forces with another king that was ruling at the time. The kingdom of Rome. Jesus was was claiming to be the son of God. To be over Caesar. That was not acceptable. Caesar allowed you to worship any god that you wanted. Just as long as you would also offer sacrifice to Caesar. Who was supposedly God on, on earth. Jesus wouldn't do it. His followers wouldn't do it. And so what we see is we see the kingdom of heaven clashing against these other kingdoms. And what happens? They're going to kill him. They're going to take him out. And Jesus, what does he do? He lets them. He lets them kill him. But Jesus had a much greater enemy than Rome. 
a much greater enemy than the Jewish leaders. Jesus wanted to overcome sin, Satan, and death. And in doing so, allowing them to crucify him, a perfect sacrificial lamb of God, what he does is he becomes a perfect sacrifice. And on the third day, God resurrects him from the dead, and he is declared to be the Son of God by this resurrection. Jesus is declared to be the true King of kings and the true Lord of lords. These men tried to stop him, but what they did is they empowered him. And his, king, his kingdom came upon this death, this burial, and his resurrection. Now, after Jesus was resurrected, guess what he did? He talked about the kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So even after Jesus was resurrected, he was teaching about the kingdom. And in fact, the way that he taught, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They were still not, not sure what, was, what, Jesus plan was, what Jesus' plan was. Now we see that Jesus sends his disciples to teach about the kingdom. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So Philip was teaching about this kingdom. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus so part of the message that was turning the world upside down was that there was another king, Jesus. And one more example, Matthew, or Acts 28, verse 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see from Genesis 1 all the way into the book of Acts, and if we went further into the epistles, we would see this kingdom being preached the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus reigning on earth being taught. So Jesus' gospel, it was not just about salvation from sins. It was not just about escaping hell and going to be with God in heaven. Jesus also, Jesus' gospel, gospel is also about the restoration of God's rule on earth. And when God rules on earth, salvation comes to people and peace happens just like Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. His gospel is not just about what happens after this life, but it's also about what happens in this life, like Brent prayed. It's life-changing and after this life, changing. Jesus' gospel is for us today, not just about what happens after this life. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has loved house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Jesus' gospel is about what happens right now. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The gospel is about this life and the next. The good news is about this life and the next. So what is this kingdom? We've talked about kingdom, 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 kingdom. What is this kingdom? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. 
And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So Jesus uses the church and the kingdom interchangeably here. And so all of this good news that we've read about, that we've studied, that we've talked about from the book of Genesis on, God is going to fix the world. And what was his way of doing it? It was this kingdom that Jesus called the church. Now the kingdom is an area of domain or a dominion. And the church are the people in that kingdom. The people of Christ, the people who subject themselves to Christ. That is the kingdom. Those are kingdom people. So we've spent a lot of time going through that. And I wanted to do that to clarify, to show all of this or to show this theme throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. So, that leads us to the next question. Why is the kingdom good news? Why is the church good news? I have five points I want to bring out. Number one, it's in the kingdom of Christ that we find freedom from Satan's power. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 the Bible says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul's talking to people who are in the church, people who are in the kingdom. And he says in past tense that God had delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, when you think about the power of darkness, what do you think about? I think about Satan. I think about evil. Think about death. Think about being lost and unable to see. That's the power of the darkness. The Bible says that God rescues us from the bondage of Satan and he places us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. The kingdom is good news because we can be rescued from Satan's power and we can become free from Satan's bondage. In the kingdom of darkness, we have Bondage to Satan, separation from God, and we have sin and guilt and the suffering that is caused from that. But in, in Colossians 1 verse 13, he says, In whom we have redemption through his blood. When we enter into the kingdom, we are redeemed and we are no longer separated from God. But we are in harmony with him again. In verse 14, he says, The forgiveness of sins. All people face the death penalty. And outside of the kingdom of God, we face death. It is imminent. But in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, we find forgiveness. There's freedom from Satan's power when we join the kingdom. Is that good news? That's good news. Why is the kingdom good news? It's an eternal kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 through 26. The Bible says, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, he said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Death was unleashed into this world. 
and it's raining right now. We see it. We open up our newspapers and we see obituaries. And there are people here that are no longer here because of death. But that's not something to fear if we're in the kingdom. Because Christ will destroy death. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. But we don't have to worry about it. That's good news. It's an eternal kingdom. We will be with God forever. That's good news. People need to hear it in a world full of sin and suffering, sickness, pain, and death. That's good news. Number three, the kingdom is full of good things. Good things are found in the kingdom. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You want to know what this world's about? Turn on the news. Lots of wickedness, lots of pain, lots of suffering. suffering. There's definitely not peace. If you want peace and joy and righteousness, where do you find it? You find it in the kingdom. In Satan's realm of the world, we have wickedness. We have conflict between men at a national level. In smaller levels, maybe even in marriages or families. We have conflict with God, brokenness and misery. Just watch, just watch the news and that's what you'll see. Not so in the kingdom of God. There's righteousness. There's peace with God. There's peace with man. And there's joy forever. In a world where people are dealing with lots of troubles and suffering, the kingdom needs to shine out as a place where they can find righteousness and peace with God, with man, and joy. The kingdom is good news in a, in a broken world. The kingdom is good news because it's an upside-down kingdom. Acts chapter 17, verse 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They literally said that they had turned the world upside down. Now, I've, I've heard this phrase, the upside down kingdom. I think it's been used from this pulpit by other people. But why is that good news? Let's think about the kingdom of darkness. In the kingdoms of this world, who's exalted? Who is served? The kings, those in power. Not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the great king of kings humbled himself and came to this earth. And he served the lowly and the weak. It's an upside down kingdom. In the kings of this world, the rich and the powerful are exalted. There's political corruption and those people who have prestige and power and come from the right families and they're big and bad, they get away with stuff. You don't have to worry about that in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of light. In the kingdom of light, you humble yourself 
and God will exalt you. It's upside down. In the kingdoms of the world, you love yourself. But in the kingdoms, or in the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, you love others. You love man, you love God, and you put others above yourself. It's upside down. Why is that good news? Because the best that this world has to offer is not very good. You look out in the world, there's a lot of people who have problems. And the rulers and the kings of this world do not care. But God does. That's good news. God cares about us. And finally, in this kingdom, the one who's sitting on the throne is the most wonderful king. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Have you ever met a poor king who chose to become poor so that he could take care of his people? No. That is a, that's not the way the world works. That's what Christ did. Not only did he become poor, he gave his life for his people. If he's willing to give his life for you, don't you think he'll take care of you? He will. That's good news. So why is the kingdom good news? Freedom from Satan's power. It's an eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom full of good things. It's an upside down kingdom. And you get to serve the most wonderful king. That's good news. People need to hear that in plain view. People are struggling, struggling, broken marriages, broken families, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual sin, and they don't know how to overcome. The kingdom's where God can fix those things. We need to be that kingdom tonight. So what do we do with the kingdom? What are the things that we need to do? We could cover a lot of things, but I've broken it down into three. First thing we need to do is we need to enter the kingdom. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now, we don't have a transcript of what Philip said. We don't know exactly what he said. But we do know as he taught about the kingdom, what did he teach about? He talked about Christ dying, being buried, and resurrected, conquering death, the death, burial, and resurrection. He talked about that. That's, that's the gospel. And these people heard him talk about that and Christ becoming the king. And what did they do? They responded to this gospel by doing what? By being baptized. The first thing, when we, the first thing that you and I need to do is we need to enter into that kingdom. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We have to be reborn of water and of Spirit to enter the kingdom. If you haven't taken that step tonight, I hope you'll respond to the good news, to all these wonderful things that await those who are in the kingdom. We need to enter the kingdom. Secondly, we need to live our lives to reflect the gospel of the kingdom. Live out the gospel of the kingdom in our lives. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Jackson better not be preaching the gospel of cold plunges if he's not taking cold plunges every morning. I better be drinking Brahms milk if I'm telling you how good it is. And if we're going to tell people about how great the gospel of the kingdom is, then we need to be living it out in our lives. Think about those things. We tell people we can, they can find freedom from Satan's power. Are we living that way today? Are we, have we gone back to Satan and are we in bondage to sin and choosing to live under his rule and allowing sin to domineer and dominate our lives? We need to show the world the good news of freedom from Satan's power and how good it is to live under God and to submit to Him and to enjoy the peace with God. We need to live out the good news of the eternal kingdom. When we face suffering and death, let's show the world where our hope is. Let's show that we're focused not on the this world, but we're investing in our treasure in heaven. Are we living and telling people about how good the king is through our lives? When people come to the church, do they see the church as a bunch of people who are just going through the motions and just doing the bare minimum so that they can go and be with God in heaven? Or do they see people who love good things, who love righteousness, who love joy, who love to serve Do they see a people who want to show how the kingdom is full of good things? Do they see the church and the kingdom operating like the world, where those who are rich and powerful get their say and get to do things that those who are weak, sickly, and and unable to do? Or do they see a church of people who are willing to be the upside-down kingdom and serve and to love and exalt others? And when people see us, do they see us serving the greatest king that we could serve? We need to live out the gospel, okay? So many people are content to be baptized into Christ and enter into the kingdom and then to lay down on the doormat and never do anything again. We need to exalt the kingdom and live out the kingdom in our lives and show the world how great this kingdom is. And then finally, we need to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus' goal was for his messengers to go into the world and to tell people the good news of the kingdom. We need to be doing that. We need to be doing that. We need to be preaching how great this kingdom is, that people can be a part of this eternal kingdom and be at peace with God. So we need to enter it, we need to live it, and we need to preach it. I encourage all of us to do that, to think about the areas of our lives where we're not doing that. We need to do this with the gospel of the kingdom. Tonight I want to close with what Jesus prayed, or what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. God's kingdom did come. 
But there's areas of our community, there's people that we interact with who are not members of that kingdom. And they could come and be a part of that. The kingdom borders can spread. And it's our duty to, to do that, to take the kingdom to the world. We don't need to be praying about other people taking the kingdom to the world. We need to be praying and we need to be acting ourselves. The way the kingdom comes and the way the kingdom spreads, the way that happens is when we do the will of the king. So let us live out the gospel, take the gospel to the world. Tonight you may be sitting here listening to this sermon and you don't know what it's like to enjoy those things of the kingdom. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the good news of the kingdom. You don't have to wait. Maybe you've studied about it before and you know how to enter the kingdom. You've studied it and you want to act on that. Now is the greatest time for us to enter into the kingdom. Make Jesus your king today. Tonight, maybe you haven't honored your king and you've become a Christian, but really your life has been a reflection of the kingdoms of this earth and you're living like the world would have you to live. And you want to make a change. Jesus will forgive you, confess those sins to Him, and make an effort to serve Him as your King. Maybe you want the church to pray for you as, we, <clears throat> as you take care of that. If you have a need tonight, you want the church to help you, come and sit on one of these front pews as we stand and sing this song that's been selected.